Up next, an encore conversation with Alan Shartalk and folk musician and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Roger McGuinn. Hi, this is Alan Shartok. Joining us today is a music legend, Roger McGuinn, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for his work with the Birds, a multi-instrumentalist and singer. McGuinn has also performed and recorded with Bobby Darin, Judy Collins, Simon and Garfunkel, the Limelighters, the Chad Mitchell Trio, among many others. Well, Roger, it is terrific to have you with us and your continuation of the folk tradition and what you have done in music. So let's start at the beginning. Who were your folks, and what did they teach you that made you this way? Well, my parents were writers. Uh, they, they were first, they, they met when they were working on a newspaper in Chicago, and after they got married, they wrote a, a best-selling book uh, that was a satire on child psychology called Parents Can't Win. And it was about their experiences trying to uh, apply child psychology to me, and it didn't work, so that it worked for them. What did they try to do, Roger, that didn't work with you? I don't remember. I was too young. You know, I was like uh, under three years old, so uh, my memory doesn't go back that far. But, but they were always kind of artistic. They knew people in the arts. They knew people, actors and painters and people like that. So it wasn't foreign to them when I decided that I wanted to pursue a career in music. It was something they, they were all for, and it was very encouraging. They let me go at age 17, which is kind of unusual. They didn't press me to uh, become a lawyer or a doctor or any, any kind of profession like that. I was very grateful. Were they musical, Roger McGuinn? My father used to sing in the shower, and my mother, I believe, played, played a little piano. She's uh, going to turn 101 in July. No! And No, yeah, she's still kicking. And uh, she, we, we had her 100th birthday last year. Um, I'm going to do a concert for her in Tucson, this year when she turns 101. Her mother and father played piano and wrote music and they, they had uh, exhibits at the Art Institute in Chicago and they were very musical. But I think it kind of skipped her and it came, you know, it skipped a generation. My mother could play and read music, but it wasn't something I saw or heard her do very, very much. So is there a musical gene? Yeah, I think so. It got musical gene in the family. And there are some people who will be non-singers for the rest of their lives. Our friend Pete Seeger has always said there's no such thing. I believe that anybody can learn to read and read and write music and uh, play music. It's just a matter of some people having a more, they're more predisposed to doing it well. So some people have a natural aptitude for it. You know, I've been impressed by a lot of things as I go through your, your history, but one of the things I'm most impressed about as a bad banjo player myself is your association with Earl Scruggs. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, Earl Scruggs was a hero of mine when I was growing up in Chicago. I used to listen to Scruggs and Flat uh, records all the time. In fact, we'd slow him down and try to learn the licks on the five-string banjo. And I followed his music all throughout my career, well, his career. And I was fortunate enough to meet him and play with him several times over the years. And he's just the nicest guy and most uh, wonderful banjo picker. We shot some video in Nashville for a, I believe it was a television special for Earl 
back in the late 60s, early 70s, I believe. And you can find a lot of that on YouTube now. If you hunt there for uh, Earl Scruggs and the birds, you'll find a, a, there's a good clip of us doing You Ain't Going Nowhere, the Bob Dylan song. I had the pleasure of interviewing him on this very program years ago, and he wanted his wife Louise with him, and she died shortly thereafter. And oh, and yeah. Banjo Magazine actually printed that whole, whole thing. And uh, she apparently ran the whole band, the whole organization. Yeah, yeah. she was a manager. She, she was really a very, very good businesswoman, and she ran the whole thing, yeah. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning with you. You're a kid. You go to high school. What kind of high school did you go to? I went to a prep school called the Latin School of Chicago. My, my parents knew other people who were writers who worked at the school, so they got, kind of got me in the back door. And it was a, uh, a very good education, I think, because uh, I didn't go to college, but I got a lot of college education in, in this prep school because they were kind of more advanced than normal, like a high school. Now, how did you decide not to go to college? I have a thousand friends who decided that they didn't need college. They were going to play the banjo for the rest of their lives. And then they found out they did need something, some help. But you made it. What's the difference between you and them? There were a lot of circumstances that came up. First of all, I practiced a lot, so I was prepared for these uh, opportunities when they came up. Uh, I ran into the limeliters at a jam session at the Gate of Horn, and they hired me. I was still in high school, and I, I said, well, I graduate in June, and so they waited till June and flew me out to L.A., and I recorded with them on RCA. And then after that, the Chad Mitchell trio. Wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's keep on the limeliters for a second. That was right away? In other words, that was really your first gig? My first gig, my first, I played in coffee houses before that, but my per, my first professional gig was with the Limelighters, and they flew me out to L.A., and, and we recorded a, an album, Tonight in Person, and it was called. We'll sing out a song that we got along far away, my son. Please try to understand why I'm leaving you so sad, like the wind. We're headed for the hill. 1776. And we played with Eartha Kitt at the Hollywood Bowl, and that was the end of my career with the Limelighters, but the Chad Mitchell Trio picked me up right after that and flew me to New York, and I started working with Chad, and I stayed with them for two years until Bobby Darren came along and hired me away from them. Well, you're so, going too fast. You We're going way well, too fast. I want I'm go just back. telling you that I didn't have an opportunity to go to college. It was just one gig after another. That was, that was the point. But I want to go back to tell you a story, which is probably irrelevant to you, but always meaningful to me. I walked into a party when I was about, oh, you and I are about the same age. I'm a year older. And I was just in college, and I walked into a party with my friend John Lipsky, and there sitting on the couch was Theo Bikel. Yeah. Sitting next to Theo Bikel was a very handsome young lad who he introduced to me because he saw our instruments and said, can we play them? <laughs> and he announced that this guy's name was Alex Hasselev. Yes, yes. Alex, and he said, and he's about to form a group. And I'd look at my friend Livsky and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, I believe the group was the Limelighters, right? Yeah, well, Lou, was, Lou had just gotten his Ph.D. in musicology at Berkeley, and he was consulting the Kingston Trio. He was, I think he was writing arrangements for them. And uh, I, what I gather was that, that Lou and Glenn and Alex all got together to kind of do demos for these arrangements that uh, Lou had come up with for the Kingston Trio. And then they got good enough that they went off on their own. And some of these groups didn't last that long. What happened to them? 
Well, the the, uh, the Limelighters had a pretty good run. The Kingston Trio, of course, they, they went for, you know, 50 years, uh, like the Rolling Stones. But um, I don't know, some of the, you know, like the Brothers Four, maybe they just got tired of it. Or sometimes groups do have internal tensions. I, I can tell you that from experience. Well, we're going <laughs> to need to know about all of that. Yeah. That's exactly right. Okay, so the Chad Mitchell Trio. Now, did you see A Mighty Wind, the movie A Mighty Wind? Yes, I saw Mighty Wind. I loved the movie. I thought it was really right on. You know, it's a great parody. And I love those guys, you know, who did uh, This Is Final Tap. I, I think they're so funny. But don't you think that the Chad Mitchell trio was part of what they were making fun of? Yes, they were. And, and the new Christy Minstrels, too. You know, like a little softer now. Yeah, they definitely nailed that whole that that whole era. I think they're were, they were going for Ian and Sylvia with, with the main characters, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was great. So now, what role did Pete Seeger play? I know he wrote the big song for the birds, or he put it together, but were you watching Pete, who is, I should say, a great hero to this series of radio stations, and what role did he play for you? Well, I, I had met Pete in uh, Chicago. He played at the Old Town School of Folk Music, where I was a student, and um, then I went to a concert of his at the Navy Pier that got canceled for some reason, but Pete being the wonderful guy that he is, he didn't want anybody to go away disappointed. So he did an impromptu concert on the loading dock of the Navy Pier in Chicago. And I was one of the handful of kids that ha happened to be there. And we got to talk to him and, and everything. Of course, he, he didn't remember this. The first time he ever heard of me was when the birds did Turn, Turn, Turn. And I'd been to his concerts. I used to go to all his concerts. And I, I knew Turn, Turn, Turn from the time he wrote it. And, and then I played it with Judy Collins on her third album. I was, I was on that as musical director. And so it was a familiar song. Somebody asked me while we were already in the birds if I knew Turn, 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 and I started playing it not in the style that Pete and Judy had done it, which is more legato, but I started doing it with a kind of a rock and roll uh, approach. I changed a couple of the chords, and uh, that, that became the arrangement we recorded, and it got to be a number one hit. Everything turn, turn, turn. There is a season turn, turn, turn. Well, Pete wrote a letter to the birds and said, Dear birds, I really appreciate, I love the way you did turn, turn, turn. My only musical query is why didn't you repeat the last verse or the last chorus? And obviously the, the answer for that was because radio stations back then wouldn't play anything over three minutes and 30 seconds and we had to cut it for time. Except maybe later on American Pie. Yeah, American Pie was uh, longer, right? Version and the long, long version. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, gradually, uh, artists were able to stretch the time that, uh, and then you know, it became uh, not so much AM radio anymore with a tight commercial format, but FM radio, which you could play a whole side of uh, a, an album at a time, and that was cool. So, how was it that you came to form the Birds? It all kind of fell together naturally. It wasn't like there was a uh, an ad in the paper, like, like, you know, somebody in Hollywood's getting a band together. It was uh, one thing after another. I was out there working as a solo at the Troubadour, and Gene Clark 
came along and he liked what I was doing and said, let's write some songs together. And as we were playing our songs, David Crosby popped in and started singing a harmony with us and told us that he knew Jim Dixon who had, had a recording studio we could use. And we went over and started hanging out and Jim kind of took the ball and got the rest of it together. We, we got uh, more musicians and good instruments and a record deal and it all fell together after that. So it was a natural, kind of an organic progression. It wasn't like a uh, some entrepreneur like uh, Louis Perlman putting together the Backstreet Boys or whatever. So when you first played with the birds and when you first put this group together, did they have a name? No, well, we we played around with different names. We, we talked about the Jet Set and that didn't seem appropriate for a rock and roll band. Uh, and then I think um, we did a one-off single for Jack Holzman's Electra Records, and he, he named us the Beefeaters for the single, which we really didn't like at all. We were glad the single didn't go anywhere, so we didn't have to be the Beefeaters. Were you all vegetarians? Uh, no, but we just didn't like the, you know, it just it wasn't the right name. And, but we were sitting down at the Thanksgiving table eating turkey, so we weren't, we weren't vegetarians. And somebody said, what about the birdsies? And we thought, ah, oh, that's kind of cute, you know. And then somebody else said, well, what about the birds? And we all said, that means girls in England. We didn't want to be the girls. They said, well, what if you change the spelling like the Beatles? How about B-U-R-D-S? And we went, oh. And then B-Y-R-D-S came up and, and it stuck. Now, you, of course, were aware of the Beatles. Yeah, yes. The Beatles were the reason we wanted to form a rock band because prior to that, we'd all been folk singers. We'd all played... Uh, acoustic instruments and done traditional music mostly and even though I'd, I'd been with uh, commercial groups like the Limelighters and the Chad Mitchell Trio and Bobby Darren and I, my heart was still on the kind of what we used to call the ethnic side of folk music where I, I like things I like people like the New Lost City Ramblers and uh, uh, Lead Belly and Big Bill Brunsey and Josh White and Odetta and you know the real stuff so that, that's where I was coming from. But the Beatles came along, and I heard folk music chord changes in the Beatles. And I went, wow, this is really amazing. They're, I think it's because they had been a, a skiffle group, and skiffle is kind of a brand of folk music where they play, played a lot of these folk music chord changes. So they, they took that experience and folded it in with Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley and the Everly Brothers and all the other influences that came along came over the uh, the Atlantic and landed in Liverpool, and they folded it all together into this interesting mix of things. And I, I heard it come back, and I went, wow, I could take old folk songs and really kind of soup them up with this beat, because I loved the beat they were doing. It was like a really uh, energetic thing that they probably, they probably figured out by listening to uh, Phil Spector and the Beach Boys albums, but uh, it was really an energetic beat. Did you ever meet them? Yes. Uh, I got to, after Mr. Tambourine Man became a hit, we toured England, and we were uh, over in London playing the, the Blazes Club, and George and John showed up at the gig, and we got to know them a little bit. And the next night I met Paul McCartney and took me for a ride around London in his Aston Martin DB5, and we had drinks at Scotch at St. James, his private club, you know. It was pretty cool. And then when the Beatles would come over to America, they'd send a limo to pick us all up and take us to their house that they'd rented up in the in the hills, up in uh, Bel Air. And we hung out and uh, jammed and played guitars and stuff. What did you think of them? 
I loved them. I loved them as musicians and I loved them as people. You know, they were really great. I, my favorites were uh, George and, and John, but um, I, I appreciated everything. I pre appreciated Ringo's rhythmic uh, thing and Paul's songwriting and beautiful vocal abilities. But uh, I really liked John's sense of humor. Anything that you can remember specifically that was humorous that you really liked? Well, he was just, you know, he had a way with words. He's like, you'd be, you'd be approaching the room that he was in, and he'd go, well, come in, you know, or welcome in. <laughs> so now let me ask you about something that may be a little inside for everybody who's listening. But I love the fact that you could play five-string banjo as well as you could. But then I read that you made a seven-string guitar with an extra G-string at the top. Now, yeah. is that, we all know, those of us who play even badly, that there is a drone string on the top of the banjo, and that was a G, usually, and you could <laughs> retune it. Was that your, I don't know... Reason for doing it? Yeah. No, uh, it came out of a, um, uh, my guitar got broken by Air France coming back from Paris to New York, and uh, it was a 12-string uh, Martin that was, you know, worth quite a lot, and they, in the at the time it happened, the airline would only give you a couple of hundred dollars uh, to uh, compensate you. So I thought, what if I didn't have to carry a 12-string and a 6-string on airplanes? If I could get a 6-string that had that high G string, uh, it would sound kind of like a 12. And it's not on the top. It's in the middle. It's it's uh, next to the octave low, low octave G. So it's a low G and a high G, like on a 12-string. And the reason for that is that I play leads up and down that string, I, a trick I learned from George Harrison, because the leads are punchier if you play them up and down the, the G string than if you go to the higher, the B string and so on, because they get a little wimpy if you sound, if you play up there. So that was the reason, you know, I put it together. It was really just a, um, a, a necessity, mother invention kind of thing. Gotcha. So, you know, I see that you play with Scruggs, you play with all these other guys, and you've done banjo albums. That's tough to get that good, isn't it? I, well, I, you know, I practiced all the time. When I was a kid, like 15, 16, 17, that's all I did. I, I, didn't, um, I didn't do my homework. I got kicked out of study hall at the high school for playing my banjo. I mean, I was totally into it. It was, it was all I ever wanted to do. So I think it's just a matter of practice. When you got kicked out of study hall and the study hall person came up to you and said, you can't do that here. Yeah. What were you thinking? Well, I, I, was, I was, you know, I could see their point because it was probably uh, disturbing people who were trying to study. But I was studying, I was studying the banjo. That's great. So if you were playing, you know, Foggy Mountain Breakdown or something like that, it would be meticulously done. You would study every note that Scruggs had done and then you'd replicate it. Yeah, that was the idea. We used to back in the day when uh, record players, you could slow them down to sixteen and two thirds, and uh, and get the licks. You know, you can separate the licks more easily. Uh, you can still you can do that now with digital stuff, but uh, that was how we did it back then with the record player and slowing it down. I read in a bio of you that you have had basically a religious experience. That you and your wife are very very secure in your Christianity. Uh, could you tell us a little about that? Sure. Well, it's not really a religion for us. You know, it's more of a lifestyle. And I was I was raised a Christian, and I went away from it when I was a kid and came back to it. But during that whole time, I didn't really have that whole personal feeling that I have now. It's like a personal relationship. And it's just a lifestyle. It's, it's the way we live our lives. It's not like we're, you know, we don't go around buttonholing people and tell them 
about religion or anything like that. How could you help us with an example of lifestyle? Well, I, uh, in the morning we read the Bible and we pray. We pray for friends and relatives and people, and we pray for the, the politicians and the world and the governments, you know, and like the 53 nations of Africa and an end to all the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and you know, wherever else, Libya. You know, we pray for stuff like that. Let's roll out some of the greats, Roger McGuinn, and you'll tell us about your relationship with some of them. I guess the strangest of all to most of us on the folk side would be Bobby Darren. How did that happen? Well, Bobby was um, he was a fan of folk music, even though his whole career was based on rock and roll and kind of teeny bopper music. But then he got more serious. He got into that sort of Frank Sinatra mode with Mac the Knife and that kind of thing. And underneath it, he liked he liked uh, real folk music. This is before Bob Dylan was on the scene. In fact, after I knew Bobby and, and I met Bob Dylan, I came and told Bobby about Bob Dylan, and he laughed because he thought somebody was trying to cop his name. That was pretty funny. But Bobby came up to me in L.A. at the Crescendo Club where the Chad Mitchell Trio were opening up for Lenny Bruce. And I believe Bobby was there to see Lenny. But he came backstage after the show and said, hey, I'm thinking about putting a folk segment in my act, and I'd like to hire you. And I said, well, I've already got a job with these guys. He said, yeah, what are they paying you? And I told him, he said, I'll double it. So that was uh, a big incentive. And I, I'd been with the Chad Mitchell Trio a couple of years by that point, and I was ready to move along and do something else. And so Bobby's offer sounded really good. That's how I got with him. Was the Chad Mitchell Trio, did they do Hang on the Bell Nelly? Yeah, they did uh, something, Nelly. It's uh, something, Nelly. It was, uh, yeah, Hang on the Bell, Nelly, because it's one right. of my favorite songs of all times, and everybody asked me where I got it, and I thought I got it from... Yeah, you probably did. I remember they did that, yeah. they And they did some really cool stuff. You know, they did, like, the John Birch Society and uh, Lizzie Borden. They, they were satirical. They, they had some interesting satirical songs. I guess the the best thing that Bobby Darren did, was it Mac the Knife? That was his... I loved Mac the Knife, and uh, I loved his folk music, you know, like this simple song of freedom. Come and sing simple song of freedom. Sing it like you've never sung before. Let it fill the air, tell the people everywhere. We the people here don't want war. Uh, when he did uh, 18 Yellow Roses, the kind of country stuff. I was with him around that point. He was great, you know. He, he and I did a folk segment together where I played 12-string acoustic behind him and sang harmony, kind of like the Everly Brothers. We, we do, uh, I was standing right next to him in the spotlight and singing, you know, it's like a, an acoustic duo. And then I'd go off and he'd do the, uh, the Frank Sinatra stuff after that. Was it a metamorphosis for you? In other words, this was not three-chord folk music. This was, you know, more sophisticated. Yeah, we were doing uh, probably five or six chord folk music. <laughs> it was, yeah, but um, it it was something that I, I'd been doing. I mean, Bob Gibson had been doing that. He was uh, sort of a disciple of Pete Seeger, but he went off a little more commercial, and he inspired the Limelighters arrangements and a lot of the commercial folk groups. Uh, so we we knew a lot of passing chords. You talked a little bit before about what you did to some of the music. And that's sort of what made you famous. You know, you took other people's work in some cases, uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, right? And also, of course, Turn, Turn, Turn. And so what exactly did you do? Well, 
the arrangements uh, came pretty naturally. They were inspired by the Beatles, first of all. Uh, when I heard Mr. Tambourine Man, it was a long four-minute song. It had two-four time, and uh, we wanted to get it so they'd play it on the AM radio, which at that time had a two-minute and 30-second limit on how long a song could be. So we cut it down to one verse and two choruses with a little intro that was inspired by playing uh, Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring that I'd learned from Pete Seeger, the little Bach cantata that Pete had done on his Goofin' Off Suite. And I learned that on the banjo first and then the Rickenbacker. So the, the riff on Mr. Tambourine Man is not exactly that, but it's kind of inspired by it. And then we used that beat that, like the Beatles were using that they probably got from Phil Spector. That's that boom, 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 boom beat, you know. And uh, basically that was it. It was not pretty harmonies, a uh, uh, song short enough to play on the AM radio with a little... Uh, and oh, we picked this verse about the boot heels to be wandering because it, the Beatles had these cool boots with the Cuban heels. And uh, the wandering part reminded me of Jack Kerouac and the whole beat movement. So, it, you know, it's kind of uh, a lot of things went into the mix. I'll name some names. You tell us. Joan Baez. I love Joan. I first met her when I was 18 and she was 19. And she was a beautiful older woman, I say. And she was at Club 47 in Cambridge playing a little acoustic uh, Martin guitar and finger picking. And I went, wow. She's amazing, you know, she was singing Henry Martin, these old child ballads, and finger picking, and she was just blowing me away. Oh, and then she did this thing that, she probably was inspired by Miriam Makiba because she was going, you know, that click song stuff. Only she was doing that some song that didn't really, didn't really have that in it. I think it was like, some, I don't know, some other song that didn't really have clicks in it, but she was putting clicks in it just for fun. What a great singer. She did an early, oh, yeah. she did an early thing called Hanging Around Harvard Square, I think it was called, and it, had, uh -huh. and it had on it a song called So Soon in the Morning When the Dark Clouds oh, wow. Roll Away. It was just a fabulous, fabulous song. She's my favorite, I guess. Yeah, she had that really nice tight vibrato and, and, and a beautiful sense of pitch, you know. Okay, next... Okay, next, our friend John Sebastian from here. Oh, John. John and I have known each other for uh, about, oh, let's see, around 50 years, yeah, because I met him in, around 1961 in the village when I was hanging out there. And one story I remember clearly, he was walking up McDougal Street with a pair of round, wire-rimmed, cobalt-blue sunglasses. They were about one inch across, you know, and... I was, it was three o'clock in the morning. He's wearing these, wearing these shades. And I said, hey, cool shades, John. He said, yeah, man, put them on and, and move your head around and look up at the streetlights. It's really groovy. And I went, yeah. <laughs> and it was. So uh, that was what inspired me to get those little cobalt blue rectangular glasses that I wore in the birds. That's great. I remember them well. So let, let's do another one. Let's do Bob Dylan. Well, Bob, I remember first seeing him at Gertie's Folk City uh, at the Hoot Night. Before 
before he was playing there on his own and before Robert Shelton wrote the great review that got him uh, famous and the record deal from John Hammond. So he was just doing um, his own stuff. He was doing Woody Guthrie songs. And one thing different about him, you know, because other folk singers like uh, Cisco Houston would get up there and do something, but the girls wouldn't scream. And when Bob got up there, there'd be like, you know, like teenage girls would be into it. I thought, this is really different. This is not like a normal folk singer. Do you remember when you spoke to him for the first time? Yeah, I think he was walking up the steps of Izzy Young's Folklore Center, and I just, you know, just said hi to him. I said, hi, Bob Dylan, and he laughed. He spent enormous amounts of time there. I remember seeing him there. It was just astounding. Yeah, it was a great place to hang out. And do you know the, our friends, the Trowms from Woodstock? Did you know them? Yes, I know, I, I know Happy, and yeah, already passed away a while back then. So if you had to pick, you know, your superstar of all times, who would it be? I'd have to say Elvis Presley because he he was what got me going in music in the first place. It was um, it was a real epiphany because I I'd been listening to music and going to sock hops and dancing and stuff, but I didn't have any desire to play music whatsoever. I maybe played a little around with uh, my kid brother's plastic accordion or something that that was the end of it I didn't have any desire to play music but when I I got a transistor radio when I was 13 and I used to ride my bicycle around Chicago and listen to WJJD which at the time was a rock and roll station and Elvis came over that with Heartbreak Hotel and when I heard that that infusion of of southern you know like the country music and rhythm and blues and things that I you know never heard before I just grabbed my soul and made me want to play music. That, that was, so I'd, I'd have to put Elvis up there. Now, you know, this is the young Elvis. It's the Elvis that he became when he went to Vegas and all that. I, I could probably do without, but like the, you know, the 18, 19, 20 year old Elvis, whatever he was when he started, that's the one. You testified before the United States Senate on uh, songwriters and how they were getting ripped off. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, you know, I wasn't so concerned about songwriters getting ripped off uh, by, by the file sharing system. Well, the the hearing I went to it was uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearing on is there an upside to downloading, and my take on it was yeah, there is. It's the new the new radio. You know, get with it. It's a good thing. Get get behind it because okay, it might be bad for independent songwriters and it might be bad for big record companies, but it's good for artists because it's a new radio. It gets your stuff exposed. So that was my feeling about it. I was there to support uh, mp3.com, which at the time was kind of revolutionary. They were giving artists 50% of sales on their on their recordings. I went, this is really cool because <laughs> if you look back at uh, some of the birds uh, catalog, we were getting like 0. .0007 cents per album, you know, like really lousy uh, royalty rates. And I remember when Hillary Rosen was part of the RIAA, she said, well, those young artists should have known better than to sign those contracts. Hey, man, we were like, you know, 20 years old. We didn't know what what royalty rates were about. You know, give me, give me a break. Well, is it true you didn't make a lot of money from some of those songs? Yeah, it's true. We didn't make a lot of money from uh, from our early royalties. Uh, now, the royalties got better, but then there's this constant fight where you have to audit the company to get anything out of them. 
How do you do that? You, you arrive on their doorstep and say, we're here? No, you hire a professional auditing uh, firm to go in there. And they, there's never been a case where they went in there and didn't find something. Amazing. Now you tour a lot. You tour because I keep hearing from all the people we talk to here that that's where the money is as opposed to uh, from, from the records. Is that an oversimplification? Yeah, well, we, we started our own label about five years ago, and we've made more money from those recordings than we did from uh, Columbia Records, Capitol Records, uh, Arista, any of them. Uh, Sony, BMG, any of those labels, we've made more on our own because you don't have to uh, share it with these companies, right? But before that, yeah, touring and merchandise sales were the way to uh, make any money on the road. And publish, publishing is the other av avenue of income. If you own the publishing to your songs that you've written, there's, there's money in that. How many days a year are you on the road, Roger McGuinn? It varies from year to year. You know, some years like uh, 50, some 100, Sometimes we're, we're out half the year. It, it just changes from year to year. You never know. I've, I've refined my uh, touring preferences. So I, I used to just play whatever dates would come in, like uh, festivals and, and clubs and casinos and uh, whatever. You know? But now I, I just like to play performing arts centers. I like the intimacy of them. I, li I like the, the feeling that you get when you're in such an environment, like a nice theater with good, comfortable, fixed seating and balconies and curtains that go up and down and lights that are set up. And, you know, it's not like uh, if you're at a festival, you're out there with people and they got the blanket and the dog and the cooler and the baby and they're there to see somebody else and it, and it rains. So when you do these performances, most of the time you're a solo act. Um, how does that differ from being with a lot with several other people? Well, it's uh, at first it's a little daunting when you start going solo. Uh, you have to do everything yourself, and you don't have as much room for error. It's like w when you have a band, you could probably lay out for a couple of bars, and nobody would really care. But when you're when you're playing solo, you have to be there for every note and get them hit them on time and in tune. So it's a little more difficult, but I'd have to say it's more rewarding as well, because you you just have that intensity from the audience, and I love it. And Pete Seeger was always my hero. I, as I mentioned before, I used to go to all his concerts when I was a kid, and I used to see him in the Weavers, and then when he went solo from the Weavers, I was a little bit skeptical about whether he'd be able to pull it off or not, and I went to see him solo, and I was blown away. I went, wow, and he, he got the audience into three-part harmonies, and he had a banjo and a guitar and a 12-string guitar and you know all kinds of different instruments that he would play, and he told stories. and. You just didn't miss a band at all. And that's been my blueprint. I, I've wanted to be like that all my life. And I've kept trying to be a solo. And I get into these band situations and then go back solo. And now I'm finally doing it. And I've gone back to my folk roots. And I'm kind of preserving folk music on the internet. In Dublin's fast city where the girls are so pretty I first laid my eyes on sweet Molly Malone As she wheeled her wheelbarrow Through the streets broad and narrow Crying cockles and mussels Alive, alive, oh Alive so 
Carlos Springfield has reunited, and I'm sure you get this every day. Why not the birds? Yeah, well, it, there was a, a push to, to put the Buffalo Springfield and the birds on the p- same package and, and tour like that. And I just don't want to do it. You know, I, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. And uh, the birds are a great memory. I, I think uh, we did some good records and they're out there. You can find them. You can find them on YouTube. And uh, we're never going to be... Well, Paul McCartney had this quote. He said when they were trying to get all the Beatles together, and this is when they were all alive, he said, you can't reheat a souffle. Interesting. That's great. That's great. So has anybody in the group ever raised this with you? Oh, yeah. Uh, Crosby has been uh, campaigning to get the birds back together for quite a while. And uh, he's pretty much, well, he and, and Chris and I are the only original members alive, so... You know, Chris is sort of, he'll go either way with it, but I, I really don't want to do it. How did the group, uh, you were going to tell us, uh, I asked you this in the beginning, and uh, we sort of promoted a little bit, but, you know, everybody who's ever been in a band uh, knows that there comes that point when something happens. What was it in the case of the Birds? I guess it was uh, Mr. Tambourine Man being a hit. Are you talking about something good happening or something bad happening? No, 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 I mean, why do they bust up? Oh, the breakup. A oh, breakup. Well, well, it was a gradual thing. It was, uh, you know, it didn't happen all at once. The birds didn't just uh, totally fall apart. They, um, David left. Uh, first, Gene, Gene Clark left. He was very uncomfortable with airplane flight. He, he didn't want to fly. And we had, had to do a lot of flying. So he, he didn't want to be in the birds for that reason. And then... Uh, There's a certain irony in that, that he didn't want to be in the birds because he didn't want to fly. I, I know it was it was kind of poetic. I, I, I even said that to him on the plane when he got off. We were going to fly to New York to do a Murray the K special. And uh, I, he was on the plane. I, I arrived a little later and he was in a cold sweat, you know, panic, panic mode. And he was just going, I, uh, I can't stay on this, man. You know, I got to get off. And I said, well, if you can't fly, you can't be a bird. And yeah, he, he quit. He quit shortly after that. David Crosby, David Crosby left next, and uh, we we asked him to leave because he was not happy. He was uh, he was very disgruntled. He he was upset that he wasn't getting his songs on the records, and he was hanging out with Stephen Stills and wanting to. Stephen wanted to kind of take him away. I I know that for a fact, and so th- there was a lot going on there, but. Um, I'm really happy for him that he finally ended up with Graham and Stephen because they did some great stuff. They did, but but what about drugs? Oh uh, well, you know that that was another problem. Uh, heavy drugs had come into the scene. I was still just doing the light stuff, but uh, but David was into the white powder, you know, the of different varieties, and uh, it was messing him up. You toured with Dylan. I guess everybody wants to know what it was like to literally beforehand, afterhand traveling with a guy what was he like I love Bob Dylan you know he's like he's like an older brother to me he's he's about a year and a half older than I am but you know how when you're in uh, high school and and like the guy the guys who are in the senior class don't hang out with the the guys in in the junior class or whatever that that's how it's always been he's always been like an older brother but I love him like a brother and I've had the opportunity to hang out with him in Malibu and we lived there together and you know at the same time and, and tour with him on Rolling Thunder and I toured with him with Tom Petty on Temples and Flames tour and over in Europe and everything. And he's just an, an incredible I've always compared it to 
knowing William Shakespeare or something. And it's like, you know, this guy who's just over the top in talent, you know, he's got so much talent. And it's almost like he doesn't even realize it, but but he's got it and he's got to deal with it. Is he nice? He can be very sweet. He's got a very sweet side to him. There was a part that we just all read about a couple of years ago, I think now, when he was out in New Jersey and walking along the beach and these two young cops came along and they wanted identification. Yeah, I remember that story, yeah. And he didn't, didn't have ID on him, so they took him in. And he, they thought he was like a homeless guy or something. That is a riot. That is really <laughs> funny. So, Simon and Garfunkel. When I was um, a studio musician in New York, around the time I was playing with Bobby Darin, I worked for um, Electra Records and I did some other independent studio work. And one of the sessions I did was for a, a group called called Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry. And Paul Simon was in the studio. He was behind the glass. And I was out there in the, in the room with the microphone. And the song I was recording was The Sounds of Silence. And it, it turns out that that was the original demo for The Sounds of Silence. But I, I didn't... You know, I didn't realize that even after the record came out, because I didn't remember the exact song we did at that session. But I was I was on the original demo session. That was kind of cool. Why did you change your name? How did you get to Roger? Okay, well, I was born James Joseph McGuinn the third, and I, I called myself Jim McGuinn. My dad my dad was Jim McGuinn, so he was I was Jim McGuinn the third, but I, I never used that. And I was just Jim McGuinn, and I liked the name, but I got interested in this Eastern uh, kind of a spiritual exercise. That's it, not really a religion. They don't call it a religion, but a thing called S-U-B-U-D, which is a, a contraction of uh, some Indonesian words. That uh, So I got into doing this exercise, and the guy who ran it out of Indonesia suggested that you change your name to one that he would give you. So I tried it on my kid. I, I had um, a son, Patrick. Well, his name was James, James McGuinn the Fourth, right? He was going to be James McGuinn, and I, I sent to Indonesia to find out what his name would be, and the guy came back with Patrick. I went, wow, that's a nice Irish name. So I thought I'd try it myself, and he sent me the letter R, and told me to pick pick ten names that started with an R, and I couldn't think of any except science fiction stuff like Rocket and Retro and React, and Roger was in there because it's a two-way radio word. And they picked that because I think it was the only real name in the batch. And I said, okay, I'll go with it. So I changed my middle name from Joseph to Roger. And so my first name is legally still James, but I don't call myself Jim anymore. Do you remember the words Big Jim Goff? From, I'm testing you now. Oh, yeah, Big Jim Goff. Uh, he, he was the guy who went flying in the air with uh, uh, a mile in the air. And he got, he got uh, docked for the time he was up in the sky. It's a uh, Drilly Terrier's Drill. Every morning at 7 o'clock There were 20 terriers a-drilling in the rock And the boss come along and he says Keep still, come down heavy on the cast iron drill And Drilly Terrier's Drill Drilly Terrier's Drill Well, it's work all day for the sugar in your tea Down behind the railway And Drilly Terrier's Drill You're going to get WAMC hat for that. Okay. All right. All right. So, so albums. I have in my hand an incredible uh, page, pages and pages of albums that you've appeared on, 
And how does this stack up in your memory? I mean, these are these are incredible albums with virtually every major artist one could name. You've done them all, but do you have memories of them? Well, you know, it's kind of, uh, yeah, I remember a lot of them. I remember, uh, let's see, we played with... Um, Played with Dusty Springfield, no Jackie DeShannon, Jackie DeShannon back in the day, and um, David Hemmings, the guy who was in Blow Up, he did an album, and uh, then I was on uh, with Earl, Earl Scruggs, we were on some stuff, and um, Eric Weisberg and all those guys that played banjo around uh, Washington Square, um, and then uh, Elvis Costello invited me to play on. After I met him in New Orleans, I met him at. Uh, a place called Storyville, which I think Jimmy Buffett bought later, but it it was an old uh, blues club called Storyville. I was playing there, and Elvis Elvis Costello showed up, and and we got to hang out after the show, and I showed him my Rickenbacker, and he liked it, and he wanted me to come and play on his album, so I did that. And T Bone Burnett was producing it. I remember played with um, Tom Petty, and uh, I was on uh, Dylan's um, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid when he did the soundtrack for that. Yeah. What, what about The Simpsons? Yeah, I was on The Simpsons, right. I forgot about that, yeah. I forgot about doing that. How'd that come about? Oh, well, um, Max is a friend of uh, of the Rock Bottom Remainders, and I think that's how it happened, but I'm not sure. I'm not, maybe it was just, you know, he called for it. I don't know. Called my agent or something. When people come up to you after your concerts or during your concerts or when you're signing stuff, what is it that you most often hear from them? Well, they mostly tell me that they like the music and that they've listened to it a long time and uh, it's, it's great to finally meet me or something like that. You know, it's, it's all friendly. Uh, has it ever been unfriendly? Has, has there ever been an incident? Um, yeah, it can be. You know, if, if, you, if you don't sign somebody's autograph because it's raining or something, you, you get, some, get some flack. <laughs> James Taylor once told me a terrific story about somebody who had told him that in the old days they would always stop and they would no matter what they would do it and they would say what a great guy he is and then and then yeah there would be the next time when he decided it was raining too hard or something and then really get help uh, uh-huh yeah it's hard to please everybody you know you can't you can't be that perfect all the time did you ever play with JT uh no I I've met him I met him a few times uh, but um to my knowledge I never played a gig with him I played with his brother, with Livingston. I think I played with Livingston Taylor. You know, what, what's amazing about JT is, th- who is really a hero in these parts, what he and his managers and others have done, some people fade, they come back for a reprise later on, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, you mentioned the Kingston Trio and some others. and But somehow, this guy has gotten and stayed in the mainstream of American Parthenon of players. Do you need good management in this business? Yeah, well, I guess so. I'm not sure exactly what the mechanics are. You know, I, I don't know James well enough. I, I've met him a couple of times. I don't know his management situation. But obviously, whatever he's doing, he's done right because he has stayed in uh, visibility. He's stayed in the public eye for quite a long time. I just saw a DVD with him and Carol King recently and. It was, yeah, the Troubadours, and that was just a, pretty much about the two of them. And I thought, wow, this is great. You know, I, I loved, I loved Carol King and, and uh, James Taylor, and I loved everything they ever did. Who backs you up? In other words, what kind of, Roger McGuinn, what kind of backup do you get? Do you get an agent? Who do you tour with? Who drives the bus? How does it work? 
Right. Well, it's kind of a mom and pop. Uh, my wife, Camilla, and I, uh, she does everything off stage, and I do everything on stage. And then we do have, we have booking agents in uh, America and England, to uh, the, the one in England kind of does the rest of the world, the one in America does all of the U.S. and Canada bookings. And uh, it's just sort of, it's a low-key thing. It's not real, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a star or anything. I'm just happy touring and making music and putting out, we put out our own little uh, CDs on our label, April 1st Productions. We were married on April 1st, so we called it that. But I get the feeling, Roger, that you are in a tremendous ascendancy right now. In other words, that when you talk about the top tier of people who are doing what you're doing, you're the guy. If they put your name on a, a movie uh, marquee, as they do in some of the places I've been, that I've seen, and you become a real attraction. Have you sensed an ascendancy into that group yourself? Um, it's something I'm really not conscious of. You know, I mean, you always you always try to... You know, keep your name out there and do the best you can and hope people like your concerts and everything. I really don't know. I, you know, I, I do interviews and, and get some publicity and people have been showing up to the gigs and a lot of them have been selling out. So I feel real good about it. But I, I, I don't really have a sense of what you're talking about. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> my star is rising or something. It's something I'm really not that interested in. Well, you know, when Pete does his patter or talks about things, you often come into it. Well, I'm 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 honored, you know. I, I'm honored first of all to to know Pete Seeger. You know, he's he and I have been uh, known each other for a good twenty years or so, and I've met him. I met him fifty years ago, but he didn't remember. But we we've done some gigs together, and uh, I've been to his house several times and recorded with him. And I I really feel friendly with him, and uh, you know, I just love him. He's a role model and a hero to me, and that he even knows who I am. I'm uh, I'm thrilled, you know. Can you think of anybody who gets into that stratosphere with him? I mean, is there anybody, there's Dylan, of course, who has tremendous reputation. But when you think of sort of the the father of, you know, folk music and the person, you can't talk to anybody of our age or a little younger who won't say that Pete Seeger was their inspiration. Right. Mine too, yeah. Well, it's it's just a wonderful uh, thing. I, I've got, you know, he sends me letters and postcards. And uh, when he was putting his book out a while back, he changed the arrangement of Turn, Turn, Turn to match the, the birds uh, arrangement. And I was going, wow. You know, he actually changed his song because he liked the way that the chords went on, on the ones that we came up with. So well, was, you know, there's a new a, bridge over the Hudson River. Uh, it's a walkway. They're calling it the Peace Bridge right now. And I had everybody lined up from the governor on down, ready to make it the Pete Seeger Bridge. Wow. And I heard, and I mean everybody, the congressman from the area, the, the, the legislators, everybody was going to do it. There was no two ways about it. Yeah. The governor's office and the rest of it. Until one day the phone rang and there was Tao, the grandson, saying, Grandpa says, cut it out. Oh yeah, well, I, I, that's Pete. That's Pete for you, you know. And I, I've had conversations with Tao about, about uh, you know, like trying to be a star and everything. And he says, you know, if you're not just doing it from your heart and and to help people and everything, it's just narcissism, and and that's the way Pete feels about it. And uh, I remember oh, a couple of years ago, he took his name off the Pete Seeger long neck banjo, 
I mean, he invented that thing. It was his his creation, the long neck five string banjo. And it, it was marketed as a Pete Seeger Vega for many years. And uh, a few years ago, he just said, take my name off it. It stands on its own. And that's the kind of guy he is. I heard a story once. Remember, Roger, I'm not sure you do. There used to be a guitar purveyor in New York City named Noah Wolf. And he sold guitars. And one day he told me a story that Pete came in and said to him, do you have this guitar that you're making for me ready? And he said, yes. And he said, how much do I owe you? And, and Noah said to him, well, Pete, I'm going to give this to you at a, a very, very low price because you're Pete. And Pete mm-hmm. said, I'll tell you what, Noah, the next time that a poor kid who can't afford a guitar comes in here, give, yeah. him, give him the discount you were about to give me, and I'll pay the And I'll pay the full price. Oh, that's so, so much like Pete. Yeah, I remember a story of him. He was playing down in Florida, and he, you know, he's probably getting like $5,000 a gig at, the point, at that time. And he ran into one of his, a folk singer who was on really hard times, and he just gave him all the money in a brown paper bag and just saved enough to get home on. That's astounding. And I, and I heard one in which somebody said to me that they had all been on one bill. And he always insisted that everybody on that bill get exactly the same money. The stars uh-huh. didn't get it. And once had a, Harold Leventhal, whose former manager, told me a story once that he had gotten him in a huge amount of money somewhere. And Pete said, that's too much. <laughs> he t- it turned it down. It was too much. Send it back. I love it. <laughs> you, you, you're just play, you're just doing too much. When you think about it, he's probably generated millions of dollars over the years, but he lives in a, a house that he built himself, and for many years didn't have electricity or running water, and he just uh, he's just got a lot of integrity as a person. I've been in that house a lot, and I got to tell you, one of the things that's interesting is that there are now six hundred thousand people who say that they helped build that house. Oh, okay, yeah. I know. But but he, he did build it, and he, and he built it himself. Well, listen, Roger McGuinn, this has been a wonderful and generous thing for you to do with us for this hour, and we appreciate it very, very much. And anything we can ever do to help you out, we'd love to do. Okay, well, it's been a pleasure, and I, I really had a good time talking to you. You're, you're a terrific guy. Thank you so much, Roger. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store. She may beg, she may plead, she may argue with her logic. And mention all the things I lose That really have no value In the end she will surely know I wasn't born to follow